The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello there, everybody. This is Glenn Lowry. You've tuned into The Glenn Show. I'm a professor of economics at Brown University and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, which sponsors The Glenn Show. And my guest this week is Philip K. Howard, who is a distinguished lawyer and writer about American public policy with books such as The Death of Common Sense, Life Without Lawyers, and uh, most recently, Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. So uh, welcome, uh, Philip. Nice to be with you. I'm a huge fan of your work. Oh, well, that's very kind of you to say. Uh, You tell me you're an economist as well as a lawyer. How'd that come to be? Well, I, I don't have a degree, but when I was, uh, I mean, I have an undergraduate degree, but I was, uh, when I was in college, I worked as a gopher at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory for Eugene Wigner, who is a Nobel Prize winning physicist, Manhattan Project person. And my job, I worked in the civil defense group. My job was to do analysis, various analyses on post-nuclear war recovery, including publishing some studies on post nuclear war economic recovery. And so it was all economics. I was working with economists and they were my co-authors, these economics professors. And, um, and I just kept at it in various ways. After, after school, I taught at Columbia. I had have an appointment at the Center for Capitalism and Society at Columbia. And uh, so I've always been interested in the economic approach economic analysis approach to governing systems. You have a distinguished career in the law as well. Uh, founded your own firm, uh, which was later acquired by one of the big, uh, uh, big law firms and so on. Uh, and yet you seem to have a lot of skepticism about the role that lawyers are playing in, uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> in American society, <laughs> a world without lawyers and all of that. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, you can't. um, Law is supposed to be a framework for freedom uh, and for human choice. And it's really important in a free society to have boundaries that prevent people from cheating and stealing and selling you polluted water, (laughs) whatever. You know, so the role of law is absolutely essential to freedom for the reasons stated by, I guess, was it Kenneth Arrow or, you know, some of these famous economists who talked about that. Um, But law is supposed to define, law is mainly a negative thing. It defines an outer boundary of of things that people can't do, like steal and cheat um, or discriminate. But those same boundaries are supposed to define the field of freedom where people are actually free to interact with other people as they see fit to live their values, to disagree with people, to 
all that kind of stuff. And what's happened, what happened after the 1960s is that we changed our idea of law and we turned law into a prescriptive model so that it invaded the field of freedom, <laughs> telling people how to do things. And uh, it, 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 it causes failure. <laughs> you know, you can't actually tell a teacher how to run a classroom. <laughs> it just doesn't work, right? I mean, you have to inspire the children and students. It's not, and you can't, you know, and so we've, we've turned it into our own version of central planning. And it works just about as badly. You got a problem with the Environmental Protection Agency, with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, <laughs> et cetera. I mean, aren't uh, yeah, these good I, things? Uh, their, their goals are good. So I'm all for environmental protection. And in the case of environmental protection, you can't use principles like reasonable standards to, you know, so you've got to have limits that are probably prescriptive on levels of effluent and that sort of thing. Um, but the Occupational Safety Health Administration, I'm all for worker safety too, uh, has about 4,000 rules dictating precisely how to have a safe workplace. And these rules are remarkably granular. You know, you've got a you, uh, stairwell shall be illuminated by either natural or artificial light. That's really helpful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, you, should, you, know you, you have to have industrial grade hammers. Well, um, uh, almost all those rules could be subsumed within general principles that are, are uh, uh, understandable, like a reasonably safe workplace or um, providing tools and equipment in accord with industry standards. Uh, but you don't need an industrial-grade hammer to tack pictures on your wall, right? <laughs> you know, you don't... Um, you don't really need to tell somebody to have light in the stairwell. <laughs> it's just, you know, it, it, that could be subsumed within a principle. And the effect of all those rules is that you divert an incredible amount of energy by people trying to comply with the rules rather than focusing on what really causes safety, which is training and oversight. And so you have inspectors go in and they give tickets for not keeping the records Great. It has nothing to do with keeping anybody safe, right? And, 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 and meanwhile, you know, whether a workplace is safe or is not, has nothing to do with their compliance with the rules. It has to do with the culture of safety in the place. So, it's, so yeah, OSHA's probably been counterproductive. But it's not that worker safety is a bad goal. It's that you can't do it with 4,000 rules. How would you do it? You'd do it with a set of principles. And you would have an oversight agency that that looks at that pays special attention to um, to industries that are hazardous, like for example, these mass production furniture factories in the South, where they glue furniture together and then they sell it for a couple of hundred bucks or something. You know, those things are incredibly toxic and harmful to people. So, so they need to be <laughs> be much more focused on those. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of things that, depending on the industry, that you can do to make the, that, that work uh, safer 
But you need to focus where the dangers are, not create this kind of universal central planning system that actually diverts people from focusing on safety, which is kind of what OSHA does. I mean, OSHA drives people crazy. I mean, it, 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 it's just the obsession with compliance with detailed rules goes hand in hand with a requirement of paperwork. So you end up not only diverting people to try to follow the rules, but using enormous amount of resources on demonstrating that you've done that with the paperwork. So that in healthcare, I happen to know this number, 30% of the healthcare dollar, dollar is spent on administration. That's over a trillion dollars a year in this country. Over a million dollars per doctor. Now, other countries are about half of that at a lower denominator. <laughs> so, um, Because they have a less litigious legal culture, uh, not, not as much uh, malpractice or lawsuits? Or uh, it, it's, it's, uh, well, well, there is a problem with that. But the bigger problem is the compliance problem, is, is a combination of a reimbursement regime where we have literally thousands of different health plans that doctors and hospitals have to keep straight. That's the biggest administrative cost. So just standardizing that with itself would save, you know, pick a number, hundreds of billions of dollars. And then you have a malpractice system that encourages defensive medicine as well as defensive paperwork and such, yeah. you know. And the estimates on that range, the last time I looked, between 45 billion and over 200 billion. And um, the, the group, the non nonprofit group that I chair, it's called Common Good. We had a joint yeah. venture with the Harvard School of Public Health um, about a decade ago to, to come up with a new proposal for malpractice claims. And we, uh, came up with the idea of expert health courts. We had everybody in healthcare on board with this, uh, including the, all the patient safety groups. Uh, Obama was for it. Uh, there was a provision in the draft Affordable Care Act to do pilot projects. Then the day before the act was, in act, was passed, uh, Harry Reid, the Senate Majority Leader, had it taken out at the request of the trial lawyers and replaced with a provision that said there could be no pilot project unless it involved juries. And the whole point of expert health courts is to have predictable, reliable standards of care, not to have it oscillate from jury to jury. But that's what causes the defensiveness. You have no idea what one jury is going to do. There's no, there's no enforceable legal standards. So, um, but, but in all these areas, what we have is a system where people are, are preoccupied with demonstrating that they've done something correctly or defensively instead of doing what they think is right. And that's not a system that was certainly inefficient, but it's also not a system that is calculated to inspire humans you know, in, their daily, in their daily activities. It just breeds resentment and alienation and frustration and all that. Okay, so it seems to me one big issue here is uh, rulemaking versus uh, discretion, delegating authority and allowing people to make judgments. But we have to trust the people who are making those judgments. And what is the recourse in right. the event that they don't 
properly exercise their discretion? Um, I don't trust anybody. I don't trust. <laughs> I, I grew up picked on by my big brothers. You know, I they they would get me on the seesaw and then get off. You know, I I learned the thing about seesaw. You learn to distrust people. <laughs> You know, I think, you know, people are incredibly fallible. So, I, no, I don't trust anybody. It's not about trusting people. Okay. It's, it's about giving people enough rope to try to do the right job and then holding them accountable. It's about accountability systems. And, okay. and, and if you can, if, if you're free to judge people and to hold people accountable about whether they're a good teacher or an effective doctor or a good friend or whatever, then, then you let people be free. And um, instead, just to, just to, on your point, we've created a culture not of judgment, but of compliance, which is bad. And then nothing works well. And so that's seeded a culture of distrust. Um, so one of the main values of American culture today is distrust. What if? That person is on the take. What if that person is doing this out of the other? What if that person is racist? What if that person, you know, it, it, every judgment could be, and so we we wallow in it. Um, I don't know if you ever read that study by Edward Banfield in the 1950s called The Moral Basis of a Backward Society. Of course, yeah, that's a classic. Yeah. And he studied a part, an area in Southern Italy that- It's um, Italy, yeah. Yeah, Southern Italy, that, you know, where, where the culture was one of distrust. So parents taught their children never to tell neighbors the truth, that they might somehow exploit it to hurt them, to go, you know, somebody would plant a new tree and they'd wake up and it would be <laughs> chopped down by their neighbor because nobody wanted anyone else to have more than they did. You know, public officials would refuse to take... Um, assistance from the government because everyone would assume they were on the tank. You know, so you had this, this culture wallowing in distrust, so nothing could happen. Well, guess what? This country has really degenerated into something like that. I mean, I mean every day I have discussions, well, what if? But, you know, so you don't let anybody make a decision because you're so terrified that they might be terrible. We don't even let teachers... This has been institutionalized. Teachers don't have authority to maintain order in the classroom in this country. They have to be prepared to prove in a legal hearing that Johnny threw the pencil first. <laughs> so how do you do that? What do you do to call other students as witnesses? I mean, it's, it's crazy. You have to give people the presumptive authority to, to, to do their jobs. Now, I recall my uh, former colleague, uh, the political scientist Robert Putnam also studied politics in Italy, his book, Making Democracy Work, where he notices the difference in effectiveness of government between North and South of the country. And uh, he does cite the uh, relative uh, degree of trust in the local regions as uh, being a part of the explanation. Uh, and, he, and he points to... Uh, what he calls social capital and civil society, you know, as, as an institutional complement to the environment in which government functions that either does or does not facilitate uh, the kind of uh, uh, 
uh, trust in uh, public officials that's uh, critical here. Um, yeah. And I wonder if, I mean, first of all, do you credit that argument? And I, I want to ask you whether you see some parallel uh, issues here in the United States. I mean, maybe our demography and, uh, uh, you know, sort of partisanship and whatnot are, are implicated in our inability to, uh, you know, f- uh, trust those to whom we would delegate discretion yeah. and whom we would then hold accountable. Yeah. You know, well, I have a, a, a short book coming out in January called Everyday Freedom, where I talk about justice issues, citing Putnam and others. Um, I think there's a chicken and egg issue here. Um, and But I think the... the um, um, the main cause of the kind of alienation and the distrust started in a very logical basis for distrust, which was waking up in the 1960s to segregation, gender discrimination, pollution, lies about Vietnam, you know, Watergate. I mean, you know, all that stuff, right? I mean, it's just like a, like a, like a tidal wave of reasons for distrust. And, and we changed our legal system on the explicit basis of disempowering people with institutional authority. They have to prove it. And so, you know, teachers in the classroom, university presidents who don't, even though the law doesn't do it, but they don't exercise their authority to maintain standards of civil discourse on campuses, that sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, the political correctness in the office you know, you're not allowed to tell a bad joke. I mean, you'd be practically be executed, you know, not forgiven. You know, so spontaneity with Hannah Arendt thought was the most fundamental manifestation of human freedom. Spontaneity? <laughs> you know, we spontaneity dead. I mean, we, we, you know, we're all forced to go to the train, you know, kind of training, computer training to teach us not to be spontaneous. It's really just extraordinary. So, so we have this system where we disempowered everyone with institutional authority, thinking that it would enhance freedom. But of course, we exercise our freedom within those institutions. So that if those institutions are broken and they can't maintain values of reciprocity and hard work and standards of excellence and et cetera, et cetera, then what do you get? You get distrust. And you get lousy institutions. So, you know, there's a lot of information, and Putnam talked about this. Um, you know, having a common cultural base is great for trust, right? The Mormons, or, you know, or, or, or uh, you know, the Hasidic Jews who live in Williamsburg, you know, these communities that come together that have a common cultural base. Um, you know, it's easy to have trust in that setting. It's harder to have trust when you have, uh, you know, as we do in our society now, extreme people from many diverse backgrounds and many different cultures and religions and everything else. Right. And, um, and in my experience and in the, uh, um, I, there's literature on this, the way to get people going together again is to have them do projects together. You know, it's active community. My father was a preacher. He did social work. The community was active. Um, 
the uh, you get people together. So there's a study in Britain um, um, showed that people with very different political views and cultural views on all kinds of issues they're working on. When they worked on a common problem, they came up with similar solutions. <laughs> you know, so you get people facing a concrete problem, they can arrive at the right thing. I used to be a run a sort of a community board in New York. You know, we had we'd chair public hearings every month and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, people have all, all sorts of crazy ideas. But, but then you talk them through and people kind of land at the same place and you don't, it's not like you develop a complete trust of that person, but you develop a kind of trust in human nature. <laughs> what I mean, I mean if people are, People just want to do the right thing. And we've kind of lost the conditions for that. We've, you know, we have this society that you've all been, people like that have written, and Putnam have written about, which is like a dumbbell. We have big government that provides services, and then we have these kind of radicalized individualism where do your thing, do what you want. And we don't have any of that stuff in the middle that brings people together. And institutional authority is key to that. People have to work together, you know, and the institution and the people enforcing values can do that. So, you know, we, um, uh, rebuilding trust is not impossible, but it does require people to have agency, you know, and to be accountable to each other. You know, I'm sitting here thinking, um, I can think of two big areas of public policy where I'm not sure how you solve the problem except through some kind of centralized authority that would have far-reaching legal implications. One is national security in a post-9-11 world. Right. And the, the other is uh, public health and you, the pandemic uh, right. experience that we just went through. And, and I'm wondering, from your position of skepticism about the heavy hand of, uh, of uh, legal and regulatory uh, constraint on decision makers, how you would uh, apply your concerns in those two areas of uh, public good. I'm so, you know, it's an economics thing and I'm thinking, you know, if I leave it to laissez-faire and to incentives, I'm no. not going to get the right answer because people don't take into <laughs> account all the, uh, you know. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, people, um, uh, I think people think of myself as think of me as a conservative. I don't think of myself as a conservative, but 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 I am a conservative in that I believe in human agency and I believe in you know, human initiative and the idiosyncrasy of human nature and all that kind of stuff and the the magic of the magic of human. I mean, it's really a magic. And we have grandchildren. I mean, it's just unbelievable. They're so different from each other. They're you know they're, just, they're fantastic, wonderful. Um, but the gist of my writing is the need to restore individual authority, I mean, institutional authority, is to give officials more authority, not unaccountable authority, not without checks and balances, but it's to replace thousand page rule books with thinner books of principles and goals that allow the person who runs the school, or the classroom, or the agency to do their job. 
And there are some areas, like the ones you mentioned, where anyone who believes in the doctrine of subsidiary, pushing responsibility down to the lowest possible level, would agree that when it comes to national security, you don't push it down to the level of Morgantown, West Virginia. <laughs> you, you, you know, it's got to be handled uh, at the top. And when it comes to a pandemic, for better or for worse, we have to make choices as a society. We can't, it's not a, you know, I, you know, I don't see vaccines as a, uh, you know, I mean, I disagree with the libertarian view on vaccines. I mean, not taking a vaccine affects other people. Sure. So, um, so yeah, we need centralized government in the places we need centralized government, but we don't need centralized government telling us how to run the schools. And while you need centralized government, take a problem we haven't solved, like homelessness. You, you know, you take a um, centralized government and certainly provide resources and help. Um, but if you really want to deal with homelessness, because each one of those people is different, just like all people, you know, they have different issues and different problems. It needs to be executed, implemented, if you will, at the local level, in a local way. And, you know, we need money for assisted living facilities. We need uh, people to staff those facilities. To the extent possible, we probably need to re-engage churches and other local organizations to help with the problem and give them more authority and not be paranoid about church and state. We're trying to help people in trouble here. <laughs> you know, not sort of make us feel good in the classroom that we've separated church and state. You know? And so, uh, you, know, it, it, uh, you know, all these things... I was talking to Larry Lessig the other day, you know what I mean, at you know, yeah. Harvard Law School. And, and he was talking about something I hadn't really focused on, which is this phenomenon of citizens' councils in other countries where they'll get, they'll pick randomly, I think, like 100 citizens, and they'll, uh, they'll get together for a day or two and talk about some issue, abortion or gay marriage or something like that. And... Almost invariably, they come up with a solution that's better than anything that the political systems come up with. And in many cases, apparently, I mean, I'm just reading into this now, it, 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 they get enacted either by referendum or some other way. Um, you know, getting people together, getting people active and really talking about the nature of issues in society is a, something that's just lost. It's a terrible. The death of common sense. Yeah, the death of common sense. So let's talk about uh, rethinking the constitutionality of public employee unions. Uh, what's the problem? How do we get there? <laughs> and, uh, you know, what's your case for the unconstitutionality of public employee unions? <laughs> okay. Uh First, it's a relatively new phenomenon. Public employee unions were never allowed to exist. We're never allowed to have collecting bargaining part. Unions existed. So I'm not arguing that a union is unconstitutional. I'm arguing that they shouldn't have controls over how government operates. They shouldn't, a government official shouldn't have the requirement to um, uh, 
um, a, a government official shouldn't have the requirement to um, enter into an agreement with them, and if not, get in trouble or something. You know that that, that the, the people who run government ought to have the, the authority to run the government, including manage manage agency. But but the but as government grew bigger, um, the the pressure from public employee uh, associations and unions to get the same powers as trade unions grew greater. And during the rights revolution in the 60s, really without anybody noticing or anybody paying attention, their political allies gave it to them. There were a few experts who said, this is going to be a disaster for government. Um, and it when, has when did, Excuse me, Philip. When, when did this happen? I mean, is this New Deal era? No, 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 no. FDR was firmly opposed, refused to even consider letting public employees unionize. FDR, the biggest labor supporter ever in the White House, who got the National Labor Relations Act passed and authorized collective bargaining for trade unions, was firmly opposed to public union bargaining. It happened in the, uh, well, the first big shoe to drop was JFK's executive order 10988-1962. Um, which authorized collective bargaining by federal employees, but not on compensation. And then the next big shoe to drop was New York State authorizing collective bargaining in 1967 after a report by a labor law expert called George Taylor from Pennsylvania, from Penn. And uh, within a few years, 38 states authorized collective bargaining. And that's, the, some- that's the situation now. Something I don't understand, which you say, unions okay, collective bargaining, not so. But what is a union to do if not collectively bargain on behalf of its employee, of its members? Oh, we can do all sorts of things. So the National Education Association had, you know, I don't know, I mean, a million members or something before collective bargaining. They were like a trade group. They, they were like a trade group. They would, they would um, um, uh, advocate, do studies and advocate for better curriculum and educational materials. They would advocate for, they would advocate for their members in a variety of ways, you know, and try to get salaries increased, whatever. All that was fine. But um, what people didn't understand back in the 60s, except for a few experts, is that the, the dynamic of bargaining in the public sector is completely different than in the uh, um, than in the industrial sector. The, none of the market constraints exist. If you demand inefficient work rules in the private sector, yeah. the company will go out of business or yeah. move out of town. Government can't go out of business or move out of town. And so what's happened, I'm, I'm sorry, and there's one other difference. In the trade union sector, it's a clear rule of law that management and labor cannot collude with each other. Management itself can't unionize, because that would create a conflict of interest if they would be helping the unions, right? So there needs to be an adversarial relationship. In the public sector, the unions, this is their main activity. They don't exist for any other reason. The unions engage in political activity on a scale that dwarfs all other dwarfs, all other interest groups. And they use that political power to support the people who have a legal duty 
to make a deal with them. So in a typical gubernatorial race, we're talking about unions devoting tens of millions of dollars to get someone elected. And then they sit down and negotiate with them over the term. It's not a negotiation. It's a payoff. So you have this situation where, where unions are effectively paying off political leaders in a way that would send people to jail in the private sector. And they do it when there are no market constraints. The only constraint is public outrage. And so the way they meet public outrage is they enter into these two to 300 page agreements that are completely opaque. They don't say union members make $500,000 a year, although some do. <laughs> what they say is that you get overtime here and you get overtime there. If you work one hour, before your regular shift, the whole shift is overtime. Um, if you want your pension, the pension is only half of your, or whatever, two-thirds of your annual salary. However, we'll judge it by the last year so that if you work overtime day and night for the last year, your pension is three times what your annual salary was. You know, it's all these games they're playing. And, and the rigidities in the work rules uh, the principal can't come observe the teacher without advance notice and only a limited number of times a year. Um, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the super, a supervisor can't ask employees how, their ideas about how better to do the job. That can only be the subject of negotiation with the union rep. I mean, literally, I'm sorry. And then on accountability, they don't say no one's accountable, but the procedures are so complex and they're so um, based on objective evidence, like how do you prove who doesn't work hard or doesn't get along with somebody, right? <laughs> you can't use your judgment, that no one is accountable. An 18-year study in Illinois found that an that of teachers found an average of two out of 95,000 teachers per year were dismissed for poor performance. Two out of 95,000. That's twice the rate as in California. 99% of all federal employees get a fully successful rating, which means they can't be held accountable. Why? Because if you said they're anything less than fully acceptable, successful, they have the right to to haul the supervisor into a grievance hearing where he has to prove it. You know, so, so you have this system. It's useful remembering that democracy is nothing but a process of accountability. You, you know, public- and where there's no accountability. Well, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> um, but I was going to ask whether or not, so on my simple understanding, in the private sector, the interests of the shareholders and the interests of the workers are to some degree in opposition to one another. The shareholders want more profits. The workers right. want more wages. There is the possibility that workers could be, it's a Marxian term, forgive me, exploited. Right. That is to say, not being paid, as it were, what they're worth. And right. the way that they get paid what they're worth is by pressuring and threatening the strike and so on. Uh, And I wanted to ask whether there's anything that's comparable to that in the public sector, in public employment, where workers' interests are opposed ultimately to, are they, the 
taxpayer who uh, underwrites the cost of government um, and where a voice on behalf of workers to protect them from, you say the politicians are in league with them, but might there not also be the idea that I want to keep my cost of public employment as low as possible so that I can appeal to my voters through sure. uh, being able to cut their taxes or whatever. Sure. Uh, can there be exploitation of public sector workers and uh, would uh, they sure. need to be protected from that? Uh, yes. Um, I mean, I, I, I argue that uh, in many jurisdictions, teachers are dramatically underpaid. You know, so, so I think they're, they're sure, you can, you can imagine the public jobs would, you know, would, would be lousy. Although, you know, we do have a marketplace for jobs. And good people have more than one place to work, including more than one government entity to work for. So, so you know, people don't, it's not as if the job market isn't fluid, you know, in some way. Um, but, it, but, but, but as it happens, that was not really the problem at the time, collective bargaining for public sector unions. There was no scandal. There was no, I mean, the, the public workers were treated, if anything, better because of civil service laws and other things, you know, that had been regulated than, than private sector workers. Uh, they had more protection, not less. And um, it was all about power. And, and as a matter of, um, just as a matter of fact, you know, this has been studied by economists and others, and political scientists, just as a matter of fact, um, the, um, what the public unions in this country have bargained for, and, and I could, we can talk about how they work in other countries because it's very different, um, are, are terms and conditions that serve no legitimate interest. If a private company were subject to the contracts of the public sector schools, it would be out of business within the year. Uh, if, um, if, if managers in the private sector didn't have were disempowered in the way that principal school principals are and, and other public managers are, um, no, but, but nothing would work. I mean, and it doesn't. So, and if you look at good, there are many good public schools and there are many good public agencies, but if you look at all of them, what they have is a culture of active leadership that sustains um, you know, a broader employee culture of pride and energy and all that kind of stuff. And it shows that what you can do with government when you've got leadership. But the public union controls were all designed at disempowering managers. And, uh, you know, I go through the case and not accountable. Um, I, you know, I'm relying on extensive studies by people like Stanford political scientist Terry Moe and people like that, you know, people who are serious scholars. It, it, it's just, it, it, the factual case is not really refutable. There's no public interest in what we have. It does not serve the legitimate interests of the employees. And the clearest example, proof of that, is that public service is repellent to good candidates. You don't want to work in it. 
is you can't make a difference. You know, th there is no human aid. They're lousy cultures. Lousy. Where people, people do things like file grievances because someone asks them to straighten out their nameplate. You know, I mean, it's like, it's, it's like pathological. And you, and you wonder, you think about these union officials at the 15th collective bargaining, you know, they're every three or four years, 15th collective bargaining agreement, scratching their heads. What, what can we demand now? You know, and again, there's no market counter push. And the, you get these controls. This year, the teachers union in Fresno, their demand, one of their demands is that the parking lot of the school be used to house the homeless. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, that, I mean, they're, yeah. I, mean, I mean, Lori Lightfoot, who was mayor of Chicago, <laughs> trying to get the teachers to go back to, to work during COVID. They said, no, the contract said nothing about going back to work. You know? Yeah. Uh, and she said, they're not trying to help run the schools better. They're trying to run the city of Chicago. <laughs> that, that, that's one of your points, isn't it? That uh, decisions in the public sector that ought to be subject to democratic review by the people end up being dictated as a consequence of collective bargaining or, uh, uh, you know, adjudication of uh, labor uh, dispute. You know, it's ironic. The spoil system, it's useful to go back and revisit the spoil system, right? We all know that the spoil system was bad and evil. And stuff. It probably wasn't as bad as people say it was, but, but, but you know, it was, kind of, it was sleazy, right? So people, people, got, people got involved in politics so that they could get a, a, and keep a well-paying public job while the party was in power. That was the currency. You help get people elected and you get a job and it didn't matter if you were any good. There was this great um, quote by Lincoln who got, I don't know, some horrible smallpox or some, some horrible disease at some point. <laughs> and he apparently said, tell all the office seekers to come at once. Finally, I have something I can give to all of them. <laughs> so, like, yeah, so, um, and so we got rid of the the um, the spoil system by replacing it with a system of neutral hiring, uh, where people would get and keep their jobs based on merit. And it was not a system of tenure. It was neutral hiring, not no firing. Originally. It was, it was called the merit system, right? That's what we do. We want good people in government to do their job as well as possible. Well, fast forward to, to, to today, uh, it, it doesn't matter um, how well you do your job. You cannot be fired in government. Like, you know, near zero accountability. I mean, you really have to almost either commit a felony or um, sometimes even that's not enough, or... Or, or do something politically incorrect. You know, those are those are the two criteria by which you can lose your job. Um, so you can't. Now isn't that? I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but isn't that a civil service thing? Not only a union thing. Uh, that is protections of public employees that are uh, implemented through uh, legislation and. Uh, uh, um, uh, partially, so. After, so I go through the history of this. I alone, alive in this world, 
<laughs> for my sins, studied the history and development of the civil service system. Um, so I am so boring that no one will have dinner with me because I can talk. <laughs> I, I, I can talk about. <laughs> Give us the short version. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, um, uh, after the after the civil service was created in 1883 by the Penal Act. Uh, it quickly became apparent that creating a kind of a permanent cohort of public employees gave them an incentive to organize. And so what happened initially is that, is that friendly politicians, quote, blanketed in their supporters into permanent, instead of the spoil system, which is episodic, into permanent public jobs. Then they wanted to make it so that they had tenure. And they got McKinley to do an order to say, saying that. And then Teddy Roosevelt, original civil service reformer, said, this is crazy. It's all about the merit system. We can't, we can't give, give people tenure. We've got to hold them accountable for how they do their jobs. And so they eventually, so they changed the law. It was ultimately codified in the Lloyd LaFollette Act of 1912 um, that, that the president had the authority to dismiss employees without any right to hearing or anything, except that the president couldn't do it for partisan reasons, and the employee had a right to make a complaint to the Civil Service Commission, but no evidence or standard of review or any of that. And that's how the law stood until the 1960s. As a practical matter, the... Um, uh, the tendency in government is not to make hard decisions, so the so that the jobs were, you know, thought to be kind of lifetime jobs. During the McCarthy era, when they um, reviewed something like two million employee files, some huge number of files to seek out communists, right? They ended up just missing maybe two hundred, something like that. Um, and they didn't need hearings or anything to do that. So, so um, the reality is that, that it was kind of a sinecure, but it wasn't a sinecure as a matter of law. And the existing Supreme Court precedent on the power, the executive power of the president, which has been reaffirmed only in the last year or so, is that the president has the, quote, exclusive and illimitable power of removal of, in, of inferior officers. So, and, okay. yeah, so that's the, that's, that's why I'm never invited to dinner. <laughs> I want to ask you a question about politics. Um, last time I checked, unionization was down in the country and right. especially down in the private sector. The, importance of public sector union members to the union movement more broadly has, has gone up in the last uh, decades. Uh, and last time I checked, uh, AFSCME or uh, SEIU or uh, National Education Association or whatever were heavily democratic in their leaning, not <laughs> totally so, but very disproportionately yeah, yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, well, there, there's a number on that. It's like 90%, right? So how is it that your... Uh, Inveighing against public sector unions is not also inveighing against the Democratic Party and against the organized labor movement more broadly, since that's where all the action is. Right. 
Well, um, so in the private sector, unionization has declined from about more than a third in the mid-50s, you know, close to 40%, I think, to about 6%. Yeah. And they're in the process of shooting themselves in the foot as we speak. By oh, demanding, the UAW. Yeah, by demanding uh, benefits because they're facing the market pressures from the fact that electric vehicles don't yeah. require as many workers and all that. So they're in the process of, I mean, I think Ford just said, we can't offer anymore. So if you don't yeah. want to work, you know, so, 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 and they did that, you recall, in the 70s. And that's what gave the Japanese and other overseas car manufacturers a big break. Um, oh, by the way, I just want to note Stephen Ratner, who was Obama's car czar guy in the bailout, uh, is on record saying exactly this about the current labor dispute uh, in the auto industry. Uh, you guys are not going to get what you're asking for. And if you do get it, you'll be pricing yourourselves out of the market. Yeah, yeah it, exactly. So, so there are reasons why um, uh, uh, private unionization went down. Part of it is that government uh, replaced many of the things that unions did. I mean, unions were really important to, uh, uh, you know, back in the days when labor was mangled in factories and mines and, you know, you know horrible, you know, and got terrible wages and, you know, all, all yeah. of the above. But but all of that has kind of been kind of civilized and institutionalized, including, you know, with government regulation and such. Um, the public sector... Uh, had about 10% of members uh, belonging to unions uh, before collective bargaining was authorized. It shot up to over a third, which is where it is today, almost immediately because the collective bargaining, for the reasons I stated a minute ago, gave those unions much more power because they were paying off the officials and the, and, the, and the government couldn't go out of business. So they just kept stacking on more and more benefits, right? So you got these pensions that are literally unaffordable. You have all these states that are, you know, like uh, Illinois, 20, 25, over 25% of the annual revenue, general revenue, are paying off um, retiree benefits. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I mean, they just can't. So, so, so they promised things th that they couldn't afford and they weren't subject to private sector uh, accounting rules and all of that. And so they, they just were giving it away, you know, for all this. So, so it's, I can understand why people belong to the unions because they got all these benefits. They just didn't happen to be affordable. The thing that's been terrible, I think, is not the financial uh, cost of the public sector unionization, though is the fact that it's tragic. You can't fix a broken school. You know, uh, Baltimore has 23 schools this year where not one student is proficient in math. So what do you do? Well, you shake it up, right? You, you change the teachers. Nobody has authority to do that. So the union doesn't let them. I mean, um, uh, uh, trash disposal in New York and Chicago costs twice what private carters charge. Why is that? So the unions dictate the routes. Um, uh, the Long Island Railroad uh, crew is fixing the track. Uh, oh, there's an overhead branch that's going to get in the way of the train. Can they just cut the branch? No. They have to call in a separate crew. So, so you have these systems. Um, during COVID, 
Uh, the MTA uh, was, was people didn't know how it was transmitted, was sanitizing the cars. And they didn't have enough uh, people on the MTA workforce to, uh, to sanitize the cars. So they hired private contractors. Guess what? It turned out the private contractors did three times the work for the dollar because of the union rules. So um, uh, it is theoretically possible that you could have governments that abuse their employees. That was not the fact in the 1960s when this happened. Uh, and, and the controls that the unions have gotten, I mean, it's almost control for its own sake. It's like to show who's in charge at this point. I mean, some of them created benefits that happen to be unaffordable. Um, they definitely preserve a complete lack of accountability. So that, you know, people by human nature, nobody wants to be accountable. You don't want to be accountable. I don't want to be accountable. Um, you know, if cavemen, if you just put food in there, Food in the cave. They would never leave the cave, right? They wouldn't go out. I mean, why, why face the saber-toothed tiger? <laughs> or do it. So, but that doesn't mean it's good for them, and it doesn't mean that it's good for the society. Now, you've been talking about teachers with the same arguments apply to cops. I noticed you start the book oh. with reference to that Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis it's who had a track record of uh, bad policing, but you couldn't do anything about it. Yeah, you know, uh, so so he had a bad record, uh, but the police chief in uh, it was tightly wound. He shouldn't have been on the beat with a deadly weapon. This cop, um, but the police chief had no authority to terminate him and no authority even to reassign him. The way po po police have a different problem than the other cultures. Actually, I think police are fine, are buffeted from both sides. So, you know, I can talk about where regulation and law, I think, gets in the way of policing doing their job. But the way the unions prevent it is that, prevent accountability, is that the provisions in the agreement and the union are just incredible. You can't interview a cop in many contracts Unless, un until the cop has seen all other witness statements. So he can align his story. You can't interview a cop within a week. You can't, um, if, if there's discipline, the cop can appeal it to arbitrators who are approved by the unions. And they're not approved by the unions if they go the other way. So they have a, their job depends on pleasing the unions. So uh, in San Antonio, 70% uh, of proposed discipline of cops are overturned by the arbitrator. It's just, it's just, it's, now, now law has really gotten in the way of adequate policing by requiring the cops, for example, prove by objective evidence probable cause. How, how do you prove somebody's suspicious? Can it be racism? Absolutely. You know, so do you need to be able to judge cops by whether they're racist or not? 
Yes, but you can't prove it case by case. It's just these things are beyond the capacity of, of proof, you know, and, and good cops do their jobs like good teachers by instinct and, and, you know, and by reacting to situations and people and looks in front of them. And some will be good at it and some won't. That's in, kind of, you know, in the nature of human engagement. Right. Um, one, um, there's not a realistic political solution. There's only one example in history where there's been a political solution, and it was a bruising four-year battle by Scott Walker, because the politicians are getting paid in this system. So that, uh, you know, if you have one party that diametrically opposes something, it's very hard for the other party to get anything done. And you're right that the Democrats are the main recipients, although not the only recipients of, of, of union support. But they, it's like a kleptocracy at this point. I mean, I go through some of the facts. I mean, Governor Murphy in, in New Jersey got direct support of millions indirect support of his charity and tens of millions, more indirect support and super PAC, busloads of union members paid for by the unions, manning, manning phone banks and canvassing, the senior union staff being the senior staff of his campaign headquarters. This is not a, not like a contribution by General Motors to somebody. I mean, this is, this is buying the campaign, and the unions say it, quote, we elect our own bosses. So is there a political solution? Oh, I'm sorry. And then the legislature is the one who grants all these controls. They're going to, and mainly what they're doing is disempowering the executive <laughs> you know, from his constitution, the mayor or the governor from his constitutional responsibility. So in the case of the governor, he was, he's paid off. I mean, Governor Corzine, also in New Jersey, at one point is quoted at a rally of union workers, we will fight for a fair contract. You know, we said, who's he fighting? Yeah. He's <laughs> the guy giving the contract. So, so there's no realistic political solution. The constitutional solution is not to make unions unconstitutional, it's to make their controls and their political organizing unconstitutional. They can still unionize, they can still advocate for whatever they think are fair things, but they shouldn't have power over officials and they shouldn't have controls that prevent someone who's elected from fixing a bad school. They shouldn't have that power. That's called delegating official authority to a private group. There's a basic constitutional doctrine called non-delegation that you, once you're given the sacred trust of governing, you can't give it to any group. And that's actually reflected in the U.S. Constitution in something called the Guarantee Clause. The United States will guarantee to every state in this union a, a Republican form of government. And what that meant, according to Madison, who talked about it a lot, 
is that the people who are elected have to keep their power and they can't give it to any aristocracy or favored class. They have the people accountable to the voters have to keep their authority. Now, I have a there's a constitutional problem uh, with this argument, not the substance of the argument, but in the few cases that the Supreme Court has heard, they've held that the guarantee clause is quote non-justiciable and should be um, enforced by political branches because it involves political questions. And so what I argue in the book, and I'm working with constitutional scholars right now to develop the case, is that public union controls don't involve a political question. They involve a kind of a basic constitutional structural question. Does an elected mayor have the authority to exercise his responsibility? And, and if that's been taken away by these union controls, then I think it should be unconstitutional and the, and the courts should decide that. So that's, that's one um, basic argument. The second argument, which also requires um, taking a step forward in constitutional jurisprudence, is that I argue that organized political organizing, uh, Sorry. Organized political activity by the unions um, uh, it involves an inherent breach of their fiduciary duty. That um, that you can't bargain, you can't organize to force the public to do things that you want in a way that's consistent with your fiduciary duty to serve the public. This was FDR's point, and while it is possible as you earlier said, that you could have a government that doesn't treat government employees very well. The one thing that is kind of a uniform, it's replete in the Constitution, it's that people who work for the government are supposed to serve the public. They're supposed to act in the public good. They should be paid fairly. <laughs> you know, there are lots of things like that, but their duty is to serve the public. And without room for reasonable disagreement, the political organizing by public employee unions in the last 50 years has been exercised in a way to dramatically harm the public. All the things we talked about, you can't fix a bad school, you can't fire a bad cop. You know, these, these are not things in the public, democracy can't work. The links in the chain of accountability are broken. So if we got rid of collective bargaining, if I won the first argument in court, so okay, no more, no more controls as a matter of law, you know, through collective bargaining or otherwise. Um, today, the public unions would still be pushing everybody around. Again, orders of magnitude different than from orders of magnitude greater than other public interest groups. Um, because they've harnessed the mass of big government in terms of millions of employees. The public employees unions collect $5 billion a year in dues. $5 billion. Most of that has been on political activity. They don't provide any services worth it, except for some legal services and stuff. I mean, they don't, 
you know, their pensions are paid for by the government, the health benefits are paid for by the government, you know. So they administer some of those programs. Most of it's political. I mean, they're, they're not like General Motors. They don't produce cars. They produce political power <laughs> over electors. That's what they do. And that's what it's intended to be. And we're talking about billions of dollars. I mean, 10% of the, of the delegates at a typical Democratic National Convention are members of the teachers' union. Terry Moe found that the teachers' unions outspent all business groups combined in 36 states. You know, these yeah. are the, you know, so, so those are the, but, you know, but we have to make new law to win this. But that doesn't scare me because the, I mean, I'm a, I'm, I was an appellate lawyer. So what I did, I did Supreme Court cases and stuff, but not, not in this area, in business cases, but, but, you know, it's what I did. And, and ultimately, what should win in the courts is it are principles that, that uphold right and wrong. You know, what makes sense for this society? Let me just ask you in closing, do you see anything in the jurisprudence of um, prominent members of the current court, Justice Thomas, Justice Roberts, Justice Alito, that uh, would incline you to think that they might look positively should you ever be able to get a case in front of them uh, on what you're trying to do? Uh, you know, um, um, uh, I, I know some of them. Um, and I'm, you know, familiar generally with their jurisprudence. I think it will, uh, I, I, think, I think the hurdle with them will not be um, the sympathetic, the sympathy to my argument. I think the hurdle will be simply overcoming kind of jurisprudential hurdles like the non-justiciability of the guarantee clause. And um, so I think they'll have to be convinced that this is important for society. To, to make it so that schools can work again. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think the, 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 the net result of what I'm arguing for is not radical. Of course, public employees should serve the public good. You know, you know uh, of course, you should be able to shake up a school that isn't teaching anybody, you know, and so, that, so that it can teach the kids and stuff. Um, but, but it's, uh, you know, there's a reason nobody had made this argument before. And, uh, and the reason is it requires kind of stepping back and saying, wait a minute, why, how can we as a society tolerate a system where, where, where we elect people who uh, don't have the authority to, to run the operating machinery of government? That's their job. This is the you know, job. You, you, you like Bloomberg, he's going to, he's supposed to do that, right? Well, guess what? He, he could do some of it, but not much. He'd be kept getting, you know, vetoed by the unions. Well, what gives him that power? So, so I think it's a compelling case and we're working hard on it. But I, you know, I think going back to the beginning of our conversation, which I'd like to continue sometime, I think society is at one of those points. Um, you know, punctuated equilibrium and all that, you know, where you kind of sail along with certain assumptions for a long time and all of a yeah. sudden, you know, finally Ceausescu is deposed, right? You know, right. decades after he should have been deposed. Uh, we're at a point where, where we need to not do what conservatives say, not get rid of government, 
I sort of think we need an anti-Washington, clean house, but pro-good government kind of platform. You know, it's a, it's you know, let's and and pro-human agency. You know, give people back the dignity of doing things their own way, and then hold them accountable. Anyway, there there's a lot that's needed. You know, we we know that neither political party is doing any of this, right? We just look at the polls, um, and uh, and and we need to create a leadership group that's not seeking power, because the thing that's missing more than anything else, I would argue, is moral authority. Who 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 has moral authority in this society? And so. I think reclaiming some sense of that is really key to the big changes that our society needs to deal with the alienation and to deal with the failure and to deal with these incredible global challenges that, you know, that are okay. serious. <laughs> the book is called Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. And the author is Philip King Howard who's been my guest, and I'm grateful for your time today, Philip. Thank you. Yeah, great to be with you.